Hello, welcome to Uru. Uru is a podcast in which we find out how Bengaluru is working towards a more sustainable future. When you think about the city, you might think about beans and peanuts, the annual Kadlekai Parishe, and nice weather, and science and technology, and gardens and dosas, and young people with computer bags full of promise. But today, Bengaluru is at a crossroads. Its growth in the past 20 years has left a mark. Each year, things feel a little more precarious. The rains seem to get worse. Neighborhoods flood. The temperature rises and the lakes get built over. Across the world, urban spaces are exploding at a rapid rate. By 2030, we know that 60% of the global population is going to be living in cities. And Bengaluru will be right up there with the big cities of the world. With an 8.5% increase in economic output and an exponentially rising population. Such high growth will continue to have negative repercussions on human health and the diversity of non-human creatures that inhabit the city. One of which is the grey slender loris, an adorable, wild, tiny nocturnal primate that lives in Bengaluru's many beautiful green pockets. You may know it as the Kadpapa. What must we do to allow all living beings a sustainable way of life in a megacity? A life with dignity, with access to clean water, nutritious food, healthy air to breathe and the ability to move around freely. Which brings us to a question, the one this podcast series is all about. What kind of sustainable future can we imagine for Bengaluru, our Uru? Over five episodes, we will meet and talk to Bengaluru citizens and find out how they are addressing sustainability. I'm Manasi Pingre and I work with the Bengaluru Sustainability Forum, an inter-institutional initiative to foster conversations, build bridges and encourage interdisciplinary collaborations working towards Bengaluru's sustainable future. Uru is brought to you by BSF and Vaka Media. What should Bengaluru look like? Bengaluru has had a checkered history with planning. It's a city that has struggled to keep apace with its rapid growth. Since the 90s, the city's IT industry has grown and grown and it has brought with it a huge influx of people, not just from across the state and the country. In the early 2000s, it was a time to feel proud. But no matter how networked the city has become, it's still a work in progress. ಪ್ರಿಯಾಂಕಾ 
ಮೆಟ್ರೋ and all this has been accompanied by great promises to make bengaluru another singapore the tussle of the city can be imagined as the tussle between the names bengaluru and bangalore this is at the soul of the conversations that the city is having with itself bengaluru was the pete area the cantonment the civil and military establishment which came in started to push it towards bangalore in the middle was the pensioners paradise the garden city the public sector city and in the 1990s the imagination of itself or the comparison with singapore this was post liberalization india and bangalore with its urban center was seen as the engine of growth and the engine of infrastructure many a times you would hear the comparison with singapore especially in the late 90s and in the early 2000s but then came the epithets of garbage city because the city was growing too fast to manage itself and then perhaps pothole city the city itself has been the idea of much research students have looked at it from the social lens from the infrastructure lens and lately from the ecological lens and perhaps i've seen more than at least 200 inquiries at the masters and phd level to understand what makes the city tick bengaluru versus bangalore will forever remain at the heart of the city's debate with itself the most widely propagated image promised to bengaluru's residents is one where it is the smartest of smart cities the most modern the most globally connected but the city looks very different from these plans Why is Bengaluru so challenging to plan for? S Vishwanath, also known as Zen Rain Man, who you just heard, is one of India's foremost urban planners and water experts. Vishwanath is a passionate advocate of citizen-inclusive approaches to water and groundwater conservation and is on the steering committee of the Bengaluru Sustainability Forum. In this segment, Vishwanath speaks to Anjali Mohan an urban planner who has worked on bengaluru city good to go anjali yes vishwanath i'll be starting a bit with your personal bio okay so i am basically an urban and regional planner by profession by training and essentially i've been in bangalore for the last 27 years and i've worked on all the plans for bangalore at least the more recent ones four plans two at the city level and two at the regional level but also i've worked on plans across the country that's also a personal association with the city because you have a house here you have a family here more importantly i'm married to a kannadiga i come from <laughs> the small remote state of himachal pradesh born and brought up in simla so therefore i am a girl from the hills 
but married to a Kanadiga, and that's the personal connection to the city. And I have seen the city over the last two and a half decades, and I love the city. Anjali, since when have you been working on the master plan for the city of Bangalore? Okay, so in the year 1996, I think, for the first time, there was the comprehensive development plan, which was already there, the CDP 1995, was getting finalized, and I conducted a public consultation on that. At that time, I was working with Civic. So that was my first engagement with a master plan, though it was not a direct engagement where I was working on the master plan. Subsequently, I worked as a planner on the structure plan for Bangalore metropolitan region, which was for 2011. It was an ADB funded project. I worked with GHK. Then in 2000, I think this was three or four, when I worked on what is the current master plan, which is in force, which is the RMP 2015. Bengaluru has seen a number of master plans that have determined the spatial growth of the city. The city received its first development plan way back in 1985. A second plan followed a decade later in 1995. A master plan for 2015 was approved in 2005. Currently, the city is growing as per a revised master plan for 2031. All these plans are commissioned by the city's development authority, the BDA, the Bengaluru Development Authority. They're designed with the support of specialist urban planners like Anjali. I was working on the capacity building of the BDA at that time, BDA and planning agencies. Then subsequently, I was the team lead for the revision of the Bangalore Structure Plan, which is the BMR RSP 2031. And then in 2014, I worked on as a senior town planner on the uh, revised master plan 2031. In your personal view, because you've seen the city at a structure plan level, which is way bigger than the 1,250 or 1,275 square kilometers, which is the city's metropolitan area, what are the city's major challenges in terms of planning? Okay, one of the bigger challenges that I feel is at this point in time that in 2007, we increased from a 200 square kilometers to a 700 square kilometer city. And then we have this very ambiguous metropolitan area, which is called the local planning area, which is 1200 odd square kilometers, right? Now, when you really see the city, there are there is a part, the 200 square kilometers, which is fairly well organized, well planned, so to say, relative, everything is relative. The next circle that you have, it's a concentric city. So the next circle you have does not have access to basic services, does not have your the lal bags and the kaban bags don't exist there. Basic services are not there. That's a ring spatially that is deficit in a lot of services. And then you have the larger circle outside, which is where a lot of the growth is happening because of land prices, like any other city is moving out. Bengaluru is in the country's top five municipal corporations and its boundaries have expanded over 10 times in the past six decades. An important expansion took place in 2007 when the earlier Bengaluru Municipal Corporation, the Bengaluru Mahanagar Palike, was dissolved and in its place, the Bruhat Bengaluru Mahanagar Palike was formed. The 100 existing city wards were merged with seven city municipal councils one town municipal council and 110 villages. The city pretty much exploded. From covering 69 square kilometers in 1949, 
In 2007, Bengaluru covered 716 square kilometers. The city has a huge challenge in terms of a governance deficit and the city has a huge challenge in terms of not being able to actually consider its ecology and plan as per the ecology the ecology is not just about the environment but it's about the larger socio cultural and other expressions that are embedded within it which need to be brought out into and foregrounded into the plan while we are working on the city and none of these really exists it's largely economics market driven real estate driven and it's really there is no tearing of growth as of now that i uh, see it's all about big bang infrastructure projects yeah with little or no consideration for lay of the land so i think that's a huge problem that we have today irrespective of how the city is planned or not economically it's booming physically in terms of population it's growing right it's just sort of bursting at the seams so there's a, a school of thought which says that it's time for bangalore to stop growing you see that often in the media that we should prevent people from coming to bangalore or bangalore should put a limit to its growth what are your thoughts on that that particular philosophy i don't agree with it see we must understand that you have increased the city from 200 to 800 four fold increase in the area right now actually the city can accommodate area wise land wise it can accommodate the population that has been projected there may be limits to its growth say in terms of there are lots of arguments saying that considering the water availability there are limits to bangalore's growth see as a planner we have been hearing this since the 80 70s 80s and 90s we should limit the growth we should stop people from coming in you cannot and how do you intend to do it people will come in because bangalore holds a certain promise for people and people find it comfortable to be here despite some of the hardships there is a comfort factor it's for any larger city now what we need to do is actually manage the growth that is happening and manage the people that are coming in the developments that are occurring and these are haphazard and that's where the governance deficit is to so i think i i don't agree i don't i i guess you are a better person to answer whether water is really a limit to bangalore's growth but i don't think that you can limit the growth of bangalore you can stop the growth of bangalore it will reach a stagnation point but what we have to ensure is that when we reach that plateau at that point the city is very vibrant it's not dying right and that is where your governance and planning or a planner or an administrator has to has a huge role to play so here's the thing you had a very close look at it also the political economy of planning right you mentioned before also that the real estate and land prices have become now a serious determinant of how plans are made and we also understand and i can see myself that even if you go towards nandi hills real estate prices have shot up and you name it even 50 kilometers from the city agricultural lands are becoming sites and large gated communities are emerging how influential has this real estate and land prices been on the planning process if you ask me anecdotally i can say the sole determinant but research wise i still don't know but i think it is the predominant factor which is determining how the city is growing of course i want to have a house somewhere say in richmond town or mg road or something like that but i can't afford it 
so what do i do i go to a jp nagar or the outer ring road and somewhere there and i buy land and i start to put up my house there and i so our planning is structured like that our planning is all about land uses right so what we focus in our planning and it's a colonial construct that we are engaging with today is we constantly focus on the economic value of land we do not look at the anthropological value of land we don't look at the ecological value of land and that's a huge lacuna within our planning processes and our planning outlook so clearly the real estate is what is determining how the city is growing and every time it moves to the periphery one of the things that i keep saying that in the planning domain we keep saying that the peri urban is where there is a lot of exclusion but if you see cities like bangalore the peri urban is also where your larger gated communities your farmhouses everything is coming but every time those come up and get consolidated there is a lot of exclusion of the people who lived on that land or had a connection with that land so that's where the whole idea of exclusion is also coming though the peri urban is not synonymous with poverty and unserved development so do you think there's still a chance for the people from a lower economic category to become part of the fabric of the city absolutely it's just that their voices have to be heard right the voices have to be facilitated and i personally feel it may seem very cliched but i really think that the word as a unit of planning is a very very strong concept right the word even the area sabha as a unit of planning right now it is a unit of grievance redressal it's a unit of complaints and looking at some sort of redressal if we are able to have a proactive voice make them planning platforms it will just happen automatically it's no great science it is just about getting that understanding there and facilitating those voices and facilitating those platforms to say and we already have a constitutional law that allows for it right a constitutional mandate that allows for it but even within the word yes there is a responsibility then of the word committee to ensure that there is the voices of the disenfranchised are heard but at least we are a level closer to the so one of the things that i've been arguing for at the regional level is to say that we should prepare a resource plan it's very very critical to have a resource plan at the regional level and you map the ecological constraints and these i call as the positive constraints just map them up front and say these are non negotiables now oh, looking at these non negotiables let's decide how the city is likely to grow so these positive constraints have to be mapped in the resource plan that has to be done at the regional level and then within that the land use plan begins to come right so some notion of carrying capacity yes you it has to be based on the the capability of the land the carrying capacity of the land and in the capability when you are looking at a land capability analysis you don't focus only on the environmental factors you focus on the other uh, factors which is your demographic your economy politics every all these become determinants to what is the capability of this land what function does it perform and what function can it perform and basis that you decide what your land utilization is basis that you decide within that plan, broad land utilization category what use the land should be put to so there is a clear linking of this 
top-down framework and a bottom-up process which says this is what we would like at the award level, at the city level. They will be contesting and competing conversations then that will emerge. But that's where you have to work on the trade-offs and see what are the trade-offs that will work for the city. So if I have to conclude this quite interesting conversation for me, how do you see the future for Bangalore? How should it look like? What should we be doing better to make sure that the city continues to be Circa 94 city? Huh, circa 94. Well, Circa 94 had a lot of garbage dumps, which I don't see them now, right now. So that was my first memory of the city because every corner had those big uh, cement bins, which were always overflowing, you know, and you don't see them anymore now. Anyway, so not that's not to say that the problem has been resolved. But yeah, to get back to that, to your question on what should be done. One, I think our governance needs a lot of corrective measures. The government itself has to start working across its silos. It just is too siloed in its approach, right? Uh, and the same holds true, I would say, unfortunately, for the civil society also. But at the same time, I think as a planner, putting on a planner's hat, I think the statutory framework within which plans are prepared, that needs a complete change. And that, that is a colonial framework within which we are working. And it's not difficult. To move towards integrated strategic planning, I think the first thing that we need to do is really change the statutory framework. And it is possible if you're changing that framework, you move towards a more dynamic plan and you move towards working across silos and your councillors become a part of that story. More power to you, Anjali, and it's always a pleasure to talk. And especially, uh, I find that conversations with women planners is uh, is the way to go. I think the city has to do a lot more of these uh, conversations. Thanks a lot. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. As Anjali mentions, the ecology of the city and its relationship with its natural resources and the hinterlands that surround it has been one of the most glaring criticisms of Bengaluru's growth story. And it has direct repercussions. We see more lakes disappear, encroachment and rampant construction onto floodplains cause flash floods. Groundwater tables are falling if they haven't already. Trees are disappearing as the temperature continues to rise. These are all concerns that citizens discuss constantly. Where is the water going to come from? How do we preserve the lakes? Why is it getting hotter? Bengaluru has a sense of civic engagement and a history of organizing, especially around environmental issues. It has resulted in some interesting examples of how citizens can engage around shared natural resources like lakes. We talked to Shubharam Chandran, a water expert from the city who works with the Biome Environmental Trust. She tells us about the lake she lives next to, nestled in a southeastern suburb of the city where citizens have been working to conserve their lake. Lower Ambalipura Lake, it's called the Kelagina Ambalipura Lake. It's part of a series which is just two lakes upstream of the Belandur Lake, which is the lake that Bangalore is famous for. This lake receives no wastewater and it actually gets only rainwater flowing into the lake. It's a small lake. It's on seven acres of land surrounded by four communities and it was rejuvenated about 10 years ago. 
since then it's it's quite a beautiful small cozy kind of lake but what happens every year is that in summer because the lake only gets rainwater the lake starts to dry up and as the lake dries up the water levels fall down significantly there are four apartments surrounding the lake so it were the core people from those apartments who were interested in maintaining this lake there's also a larger organization called mapsas so mapsas is a local trust which stands for mahadevapura bhivritti parisara samste so basically in the mahadevapura constituency they take care of several lakes in the area lower amlipura is is one of them so this is the group that constitutes the community the fisherman is also part of the community in fact there is a whatsapp group where we have the fisherman the gardener for some time we had the bbmp engineer i mean it's not a very wholesome community it's largely made up of the urban middle class residents in the apartments but there's also the fisherman and he contributes to this group as well even though he can't speak english but he'll share pictures with us of what's happening at the lake the ducks at the lake and so does the lake gardener too so there is communication that happens on that group So actually this entire area wasn't as built up say 2005 4 5 there were just a few apartments for the most part people didn't even know that it was a lake it was kind of a swamp that was not accessible in fact the mapsas trust that i spoke to about kind of got formed this was one of the first lakes and at, at that time i mean people didn't know what exactly what would be the process all of that evolved in fact all the apartments weren't even built so one of the apartments is quite tall and what that has done is has uh, made the angle much steeper for the larger birds to come in so earlier when the water levels were not as much and the buildings weren't as tall we would have larger birds come into this area but now with the buildings growing taller the birds don't get their angle to kind of land bbmp's thought normally is that you don't need to maintain a lake so what they do is they have a contractor for the lake three or four times a year they send a group of gardeners or people who just come and chop off a whole bunch of stuff and go away and they may appoint some security at the lake that's been the process but in this case because it was kind of landlocked and so perhaps not very representative of all the other lakes in bangalore some key people who were interested right from the beginning who said we'd contribute a certain amount every month and that money would stay with mapsas and in turn mapsas would make sure that the gardener is employed and uh, the lake is taken care of in the meanwhile that group has also grown from being a very small group to becoming more inclusive a larger group of trustees appointing a lake supervisor who would go around to take care of all these lakes then having a lake steward who would kind of do the communication with bbmp so a lot of growth of that organization also happened uh, in the meanwhile these four apartments continued to contribute this money which has actually helped we've had the same gardener again for the last uh, 12 years now his name is sinapa he's been written about in the newspapers but i think having this formal organization called mapsas which was speaking to the bbmp holding the communication with the community kind of helped take this entire process through of course also few key residents who have been living around the lake and always been interested each of the issues the way that people have observed it and addressed it that's helped to be local eyes on the ground somehow this whole group has kind of hung around over the last 12 years so i think that also perhaps has had a role to play this is not an uncommon story because of the speed at which the city has grown in the past decade Huge residential developments sit cheek by jowl with land that is still used for traditional livelihoods and increasingly citizen groups are finding that they all have to work together to protect their natural resources. 
we see a number of citizen groups that have come together to rejuvenate and become stewards of the lakes that they either reside alongside or work with. Here's Avinash Krishnamurti, a water expert from Biome Environmental Trust. So these people are coming together and trying to make sure that they are working with the government to ensure these disturbing drivers of growth that disturbs the ecology, those forces are kept at bay. At the broadest level, that's the thing. Now, what's working for Bangalore, it seems that so many citizens are now actually getting engaged with this process. But there are many, many, many groups across different lakes coming together. And it's even reached a point where there is a consciousness that, hey, the lake that you are group you are in is downstream of the lake I am in or upstream of the lake I am in. And so what is our relationship with each other as groups of lakes? So there's a network right, called Friends of Lakes. So I think what's worked in Bangalore is at least there is this kind of a broader consciousness and many citizens are coming together. And thanks, I think, to a long history. Sometimes it's hard to make sense of what old Bengaluru means to people. Things here change at a speed that feels different. Moth Road, you smell the Nala before you see it, right? This is Meera Ayer, lover of Bengaluru and long-time member of INTAC, the Indian National Trust for Art and Cultural Heritage. There were so many people told us they used to actually swim in it. They used to go swimming in that Nala and how it used to have these lovely grassy banks and it was clear water and uh, used to swim in it. Does Meera live in the past? It's possible. But in a city obsessed with the future, where things disappear with little notice and are replaced with glass, steel and promises, you could argue that the city desperately needs more people like Meera. There's a temple called the Panchalingeshwara Temple in Begur, which is somewhat near Electronic City. There are actually a bunch of hero stones there, hero stones and inscriptions both. A hero stone or a virgalu is a traditional and old way of celebrating heroes in battles. A stone slab is sculpted in their honour, often depicting the hero in battle scenes with an accompanying inscription. And one of them, the one that looks most unremarkable, the plainest one, no pictures, no images, nothing. That one has an inscription on it that says that, if I remember right, it says Nagatara, his son, Bhuttanapati, and his uh, adopted son, Peruvanasati, died in the Battle of Bengaluru. This is, what, this is the gist of it. And uh, this is interesting. This, this last thing that says the Battle of Bengaluru is very interesting because it tells us right away that there is there was a place named Bengaluru as far back as around 890, which is when this inscription is thought to have been written, which makes it important from the point of view of the history of the city because otherwise there are all these this oft-repeated story about Hoysala Veeraballa who went hunting and found the old lady in the middle of the forest and she gave him beans and Ben the Kaluuru and all of that. Those are really cute stories, but of course that's just a story. Coming back to the stone itself, the stone used to be propped against one of the walls in the temple. So we used to talk to people in the temple and say, you know, this is a really important stone. Why don't we do something to protect it? And they'd say, we're building this gopra. As soon as that finishes, we'll do this, we'll do this. And it never happened. You know, we've, we've, we've been seeing it for like 10 years. 
And each time it would be in a scarier situation, like once there were cement blocks on it, once it was completely, like almost completely buried under firewood. And so we, and in the meantime, there's all this construction going on around the temple, in and around the temple, because they're constructing four new goparas for this old temple. So finally, we spoke to various people in the government and we said that we wanted to secure the stone so that it wouldn't get damaged. So finally, we got permission and then we did that. I think in 2018 or 2019, we finally moved the stone to another location in the temple, provided it with signage and highlighted it by placing it in a small little pergola. Now, if you go there, you can actually see why that stone is important. In 2019, Mira helped publish a book called Discovering Bengaluru. It's really about neighborhoods in the city. And through that, you get an idea of the city's history as such as well. To encourage people to get to know the city, we also had this format where we have an introduction to the neighborhood and then we have heritage walks, like a map, and you can go on a heritage walk. But the idea was to encourage people to walk through the city because that's really the best way to get to know it. The book is full of stories but also about what it takes to protect places of historical importance. There are lots of people nowadays who are quite passionate about the city's heritage, built heritage especially. So we've been conducting the heritage walks in TAC since 2008. And uh, there's a huge difference in the average person who comes to the walk now versus you know, 10 years ago. So they already know a lot of stuff. Whereas in 2008, they were like, oh, I've been living here all my life. I don't know. I've never seen this building before. Ah, I didn't know this. You know, we still get people like that, of course. But overall, I think the awareness level has really gone up. But protecting heritage takes more than crowdfunded campaigns and enthusiastic citizens. There's also the mindset because people still don't associate Bangalore with heritage. And so every time you say heritage, their eyes are sparkling and thinking of Mysore. But they're not thinking of Bangalore as heritage at all because it's a very forward-looking city. Many people in government, bureaucrats included, have a slightly older idea of what heritage is because for them, heritage means temples and forts and palaces. And then after that, we have this vast city filled with all kinds of buildings which also are heritage. Some of them are dating from the 1600s, some of them are dating from the 1800s and some from the 1900s, but they're all heritage. So for example, there is the Tipu Sultan's Armory, which is, you know, from Tipu's period, which is not declared heritage, but it is. It should be. And then we have like so many temples around the city, which are also like really, really old, some of them but they're not declared as heritage. But many of these temples fall under the purview of the Department of Endowments, which is the Mujrai Department. Then we have all these other buildings like houses and government offices. So for example, the Atara Kacheri. Atara Kacheri was built in 1868. It's not declared as heritage, but I wish it would be. So what is the role of heritage and conservation in a conversation about sustainability? It's not just nostalgia but about fostering a deeper connection with what city, its neighborhoods, and developing a sense of rootedness, and also a sense of responsibility, so that you feel that you are a steward of your surroundings. One way to do this is to share heritage with young people in a way that doesn't feel like a drab and dull history lesson. Mira wanted to convey some of the micro-histories that permeate Bengaluru's neighbourhoods and commissioned an anthology of short stories for children 
called 11 stops to the present each story looks at a part of bengaluru through a historical lens with the hope that young readers will look at their own neighborhoods with new eyes and perhaps feel differently towards them if there's one thing we know about bengaluru it is that it's going to grow bigger and who knows one day it might look like singapore the question is what do we want our city to look like my community has lots of trees around us we have lots of birds we are living like a family together sharing our feeling making food here we play for a long time like palao idli dosa and biryani going to walking riding cycle together making things the more i live in this community the more i love the community we are the community of being known and knownable to be honest it's not difficult to see the blue sky or white clouds we can become a great community in our layout your obedient yours obediently vachan gouda thank you for listening i'm manasi pingre thanks to s vishwanath anjali mohan avinash krishnamurthy shubha ramachandran meera ayer lasya priya vachan gouda pinky chandran and ashwini shrinivas thanks also to intact biome environmental trust teach for india and radioactive for more information please go to our website at bengalurusustainabilityforum.org